Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the absolutely necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm normally joined by my Partner in crime, uh, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. But Elliot is traveling. So I am soloing today with our very special guest, Owen Matthews, who has uh, been a historian, a journalist, uh, author of thrillers, which we'll get into in a minute, but also, uh, most importantly, the author of the newly released book by HarperCollins, Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine. Owen has been uh, not just a historian and a journalist, but he's been uh, the uh, Moscow correspondent uh, bureau chief for Newsweek uh, and the Istanbul chief as well, I believe. And uh, Owen, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Great to be on. Thank you, Eric. Before we uh, delve into Overreach in the book, You've spent a lot of time in Russia. You are essentially a native Russian speaker, studied at Oxford, but you have a family history and, and family roots in Russia. Could you tell our Shield listeners a little bit about how you came to spend so much time in Russia? Yeah, that, that's. Uh, I was born and, and raised in London, but uh, my mother is indeed Russian, or as I used to tell people, my mother is Russian from Kharkiv. Uh, now, that's actually become a rather controversial thing to say these days, because when my, my mother, who's still with us, I'm glad to say, was born in 1934, Kharkov was the capital of Soviet Ukraine. Um, so, in fact, uh, whether Kharkov is, uh, whether you can, in fact, be Russian from Kharkov has become something of a, of a culture war within Ukraine, because, as we know, one of the great fault lines um, which underpins this war is that divide between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers in Ukraine. And um, her family, my mother's family, the Bibikovs, are actually a really interesting example of how complicated that relationship is between Russia and Ukraine and how complicated it's been historically. Because uh, the Bibikovs uh, were a Russian noble family um, whose involvement in, in uh, Ukraine began in the end of the 18th century. And uh, one of my uh, ancestors was involved in Catherine the Great's uh, annexation of uh, the Crimean Peninsula, or uh, when the Crimeans, uh, the last Crimean Khan, basically um, surrendered his territory to the Russian Empire. Another one was a Russian governor of Kiev in under Nicholas I in the 1830s and 1840s. But the point of all this history is to demonstrate a really important point, and that was that um, Kiev, uh, Ukraine, and Russia has, have historically been sufficiently culturally close that from the 18th century onwards they had basically interchangeable elites. In other words, like you know, senior members of the Ukrainian elite would go on to be courtiers in St. Petersburg and vice versa. You know, Russians would come from St. Petersburg and be integrated into the, you know, in, into the administrative and cultural elite of, of Ukraine. But they're sufficiently different that when the senior, when the imperial dominant partner, Russia, uh, becomes weak, then they, there is sufficient difference for them to split. So what we're talking about is certainly a colonial situation whereby a powerful neighbor conquers and colonizes a smaller neighbor. Um, but it's not like England and India. It's like England and Ireland. It's like England and Scotland. You actually have two countries that are actually, you know, rather close, but nonetheless different enough that now, you know, once conflict flares up, you get this... Um, what you might call as you know, the vanity of small differences, although it's not vanity. I mean, people, the Ukrainians take it very seriously that they that their culture has been suppressed uh, for centuries, which is certainly true, by the way. Uh, the Russian Empire and the Soviets, the Soviet Union, did uh, see danger in Ukrainianness, um, but the 
thing that's pertinent for the situation today, the important thing about all of this history and why we should be thinking about it today, is that uh, there is a significant proportion of modern Ukrainian society that speaks Russian as their first language. Vladimir Zelensky, the president, literally speaks Russian at home to his kids. It's his native language. It's the native language of you know, up to 40% of, of, of Ukrainian people. And what the war has done is drive a wedge between Ukrainian, so Russian speakers and people who identify as Russian. And one of Vladimir Putin's major mistakes when he launched that war is that he didn't see that there was a difference between those two things. He thought Russian speakers would be pro-Russian. That was maybe true you know, uh, before 2014 when uh, Putin annexed Crimea, but it's definitely not true now. I want to get into all of that, but I'm just curious. Actually, my maternal grandparents were from Odessa and, of course, were Russian speakers. And if they were alive today and you asked them, I'm sure they would say we were Russians. They wouldn't identify themselves as Ukrainian. They left in 1919. But I'm curious, did you uh, did you grow up speaking Russian at home? Because I had two Russian speaking parents, but we were all the children were all encouraged to study French. Russian became the privileged language of adult communication in our household. And I only started studying Russian when I was in my early 30s on my way to Moscow as a part of the U.S. Embassy in the late 80s there. But I'm just curious, did you grow up speaking it or, or did you uh, study at school? I, I, did, I, grew, I, did grow up, I did grow up speaking it, yes, that's right. And, uh, uh, and, and my, my mother is a, is a, is a, is a, was uh, spent her career as a teacher of Russian language and literature. So I had, to, you know, uh, so I had the full sort of Soviet you know, style <laughs> you know, homeschool experience of having Russian grammar drilled into me. But that must have been a great asset for you as a journalist, both in your time at the Moscow Times and with Newsweek, in terms of your access to uh, Russian officials and also just, you know, Russian uh, citizens in day-to-day life. Uh, yes, that's certainly true. And actually, uh, yes, I'm filled with admiration for that there are foreigners that speak near, near fluent Russian, and I frankly don't know how they do it from scratch. It's an amazingly difficult language. Uh, but I have an unfair advantage indeed. I have, I, it's, it's literally my, my, my mother tongue. Well, let's talk a little bit about, before the we get into uh, the war, and I want to go back to 2014, but also obviously the current war that you write about so brilliantly, frankly, in this book. Talk a little bit about your observation of the evolution of the Putin you know, regime. I mean, quite famously, I worked in a American administration where uh, President Bush 43 met with Vladimir Putin in 2001 in the spring in Slovenia and said, I've looked into this man's eyes and seen his soul and I liked what I saw and I could do business with him. And a lot of us winced, frankly, when we heard him say that. But there was a sense of optimism about the Putin regime initially, but it's gone on a trajectory that has taken Russia in a very dark direction. I'm just curious, when did you see this dark direction developing? How, how did you see the whole trajectory going during your time observing? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, and it, well, for, for a start, we actually need to recognize, it's important to recognize that there is a, is a trajectory, that Putin has changed, and that actually Putin of, uh, you know, the, into whose eyes Bush looked is a different Putin to the Putin today. Um, because uh, I think there is a, there's a tendency. I remember having a, having a big debate um, argument. I would say uh, with uh, Radoslav Radoslav Sikorski, the former def- uh, Polish uh, Interior and Defense Minister, um, during an Intelligence Squared debate a few months ago. And uh, for people like Sikorski, who have always been extremely hawkish about uh, Putin, um, he has said that you know, basically I knew that Putin was a Russian imperialist from like the two thousands. It was clear to me that um, this uh, plan of imperial domination was always Putin's agenda. Uh, Now, actually, I I don't think that's the case. And I think it's actually demonstrably not the case. Uh, I don't think Putin, uh, uh, or rather, let's um, unpack this. Putin was always a Soviet nostalgist in, in certain ways. Um, he always had a sense of grievance about how Russians who had been stuck outside the borders of the Soviet Union were treated. And if anyone knows a single quote from Vladimir Putin, 
It's from his statement to the Russian Duma in November 2005 when he uh, famously said um, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. People, But people forget the first half of that sentence. What Putin said back in 2005 is, for the millions of Russians who found themselves trapped outside the borders of their homeland, comma, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. Now, that's a kind of different message. I mean, it's the, 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 the point is, I think, that for um, a long stretch of Putin's career, uh, his priority was, in fact, to be accepted by the West, to be a member of Western clubs. Um, he uh, was enormously proud and made a huge fuss of hosting the G8 uh, in St. Petersburg. Um, he uh, was extremely um, sensitive always about being sort of left out and not consulted. Um, but nonetheless, always he would continue through, you know, hypocritically perhaps, um, he would always continue to refer to my Western partners. I mean, they, 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 there was a long period of Putin's career, I would say probably until about 2013, 2012, when Putin was convinced that um, that, that, that there was basically a deal to be done, that there was respect to be won, that Putin could integrate Russia into the world on more on, on more respectful terms. Uh, I think that broke down uh, when he returned from his four-year hiatus uh, for his third time as president, when Putin returned as president in 2012 and was confronted with, uh, for the first time in his career, massive popular demonstrations. And I think to him, that was uh, because he, I think he's sincerely convinced, he was sincerely convinced then, that this was the work of the State Department, you know, of your colleagues, Ambassador Edelman. Well, I was out of government <laughs> then, so I don't take any responsibility for it. But yes, it was uh, Secretary Clinton, but, I think, who he blamed, actually. Right. right. Sure. Um, and, and for him, this was a clear sign that, uh, the West were not willing to accept him on his own terms. And by that time, of course, in 2012, he'd already invaded Georgia in 2008. So, you know, already the, like, the wheels have sort of more or less come off the bus of cooperation. But nonetheless, the Obama administration did attempt a final uh, reset with, um, with, with, um, with the Kremlin. But the, I think the, the, the change comes when... Putin decides that the West wants him gone and his regime over. Um, and from then on, he starts to move in a pretty inexorably anti-Western direction. And um, the ruling passion, the ruling sort of fixed idea in his mind, I think, is, is that uh, he is fighting against a concerted Western plot to overthrow him. It seems to me that that may be dating it a little late in the sense that in 2004-05 with the Orange Revolution, he clearly is taken aback by the Yushchenko-Yanukovych election in, in 2004 and then the protests that uh, put uh, Yushchenko, force a second running and put Yushchenko in the beginning of the color revolutions. And then later his, his uh, speech to the Duma, which he talks about Comrade Wolf referring to the United States, and then the 2007, of course, Munich a security conference speech, which also seems like a, a declaration of war is maybe too strong, but but certainly a, a Jeremiah against the U.S.-led you know unipolar uh, world. I wonder what you make of the theories of my late colleague Karen Dawisha um, and uh, Catherine Belton that that really Putin's regime from the get-go is sort of. Uh, if not a conspiracy, but a sort of concerted effort by elements of uh, the security services, particularly the KGB and particularly those around Putin in St. Petersburg to, to take back the Russian state from the hands of the quote unquote Democrats, you know, into whose hands it's fallen uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Do you, do you think that's too conspiratorial or is there some element of truth in that? No, I, I, th I think I think that's uh, that's entirely on the money. I mean, I think it's 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 very clear that um, that you know right from the from the beginning. In fact, even from the days when Putin, you know, before Putin um, makes it to the presidency, um, already as prime minister, he, he he surrounds himself with his closest allies 
you know, from the 1990s politically in the presidential administration, then as head of the FSB, then as prime minister, and then as president, have been the same tiny bunch of guys who he's been working with since the 1970s. I mean, that's really unprecedented in the history of government or barely precedented, that actually a ruling elite will have actually been, you know, um, known each other for, for, a half, for nearly half a century and worked with each other for nearly half a century. And um, the KGB uh, takeover of the state was already complete when Putin came um, to power because he immediately put some of his most powerful, you know, installed some of his old KGB, basically filled the key positions, particularly in the security state with his old cronies. And uh, the difference was that I think in the early 2000s, um, there was a conflict and, and there's, you know, every administration has 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 different voices, um, whether it's Russian or or, or whatever it, it may be. Um, there was a certain pragmatic, uh, what what has been various is described as sort of you know technocratic or liberals. Or I mean, I don't think they're particularly liberal, but the people who are generally described as the technocrats in the Putin regime were at least recognizably post-Soviet unlike Putin himself and his cronies, Nikolai Patrushev, who's the Secretary of the Security Council, and um, uh, Alexander, Alexander Bortnikov, who's head of the FSB. These, these have completely remained in their outlook, in their paranoia, in their fundamental ignorance and, and lack of understanding of the mechanisms of how the world and the West works. These are total homo Sovieticus people. Um, but um, the, there was, there were pragmatists in the room, and I think um, indeed you're right in identifying the, the Orange Revolutions as a kind of turning point. That sort of was the, a major trigger for the, um, for, for, for the for the paranoia. But already, I mean, the the, the, the Putin administration, you know, as early as 2002 and 2003, when the, they were they, when they finally when they were moving against Mikhail Khodorkovsky and finally arrested him in 2003, you know, already that's, you know, pure KGB tactics at work. So there's never, there was never any doubt of whether they were really, uh, the, the, whether the KGB you know, had, 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 had taken charge. I think there is, there is some debate about what they wanted, where they wanted to get to. And you uh, um, mentioned the 2007 uh, Munich speech, which indeed was a sort of real considered a real landmark moment. It was Putin's answer to that series of color revolutions, which Putin himself and his, his inner circle construed as, you know, Western-inspired salami tactics to undermine the, 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 the Russia's power and influence over its near, near abroad. But there's a really important point, a non-trivial point about the Munich speech, is that actually, if you read it, you see that what he's appealing, he's indeed railing against American hegemony, but he's appealing to Europe to make its own arrangements with him. So, I mean, it's, it sounds, I mean, it seems now like, you know, after all this sort of storm and drying, it's like a sort of, you know, but, but it's actually more than, the, than, obscure, than an obscure historical point. Um, I think the relationship with America broke down long before because um, he believed that it was America that was exclusively and mostly behind the color revolutions. Uh, I think he held out much more hope that he could build bridges with the Europeans uh, because with the, Europea with the Europeans had obviously, obviously a more fractionalized leadership that he could uh, make deals with individual governments, divide and rule and so on. Uh, so, you know, for, from um, uh, right up basically, I think until, you know, more or less 2020, um, when the whole sort of, sort of avalanche of events that really that, that leads to war, I, I, th I think there was hope that he could do do deals with Europe. I want to turn to 2014, and you know, you mentioned, of course, in 2008, Putin invades Georgia. Uh, that's, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the Bucharest summit, which debated the question of Georgian and Ukrainian membership in NATO, even though. In those days, uh, under President Yanukovych, there was not much of a, a push in Ukraine for NATO membership. And the uh, NATO summit came to a, a 
after intense debate, because there was a lot of opposition to Georgia and Ukraine as potential NATO members, the the actual issue at, at stake at the time was whether to give the membership action plan, which had only been awarded to countries that ultimately had become members of NATO, to Georgia and Ukraine. The opposition from France and Germany blocked that. Uh, but the compromise they came up with was to not give them the membership action uh, plan, but to in the communique state authoritatively that Georgia and Ukraine would someday become members of NATO, which obviously you know was like waving a red flag at Putin. But it seems like the 2014 seizure of Crimea and then the destabilization of of eastern Ukraine, the the Donbas, Lugansk, and Donetsk is really a function of what appears to be Ukraine's turn towards Europe. It's not even NATO. It's it's the EU that becomes the sort of potential causes belli for Putin. Can you explain to our listeners how all that transpired and how it set the stage for 2022? Well, uh, you're completely right that um, to uh, if, you, if you ask a Russian, or if you, if you were to ask Putin, um, NATO's aggression, quote-unquote aggression, and its inexorable expansion are like front and center. It's the, the main thing that they always talk about. Um, but in fact, um, one of the most revealing quotes from uh, Putin's inner circle um, was this guy, Viktor Zoltov, who's a former head bodyguard to Putin, who now heads the Russian National Guard, who, uh, um, who said a, a few years ago, um, Ukraine isn't important. Ukraine happens to be where the border between Russia and America lies. So uh, NATO is really a proxy for American expansion in Russia's mind. Um, and the problem is that um, everything that the Russians say about NATO expansion, in ter- you know, factually, uh, is true. They, uh, NATO did expand. There were certain uh, um, assurances that were given, certainly not formally, but definitely informally. There's been a lot of academic writing about this, uh, the sources. Back in 1991, there were... S- Undoubtedly, some informal assurances given by the United States that NATO would not expand, it expanded. There was the Bucharest summit, which indeed declared definitively that NATO would enlarge and so on. All those things are factually true. However, what the difference between the, 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 the but, but, you know, what I or most Western commentators would say was that actually, in practical terms, uh, I don't think there was really any real possibility or probability of Ukraine ever joining NATO, not least because there is actually a, uh, in, in, the, in the constitution of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, there is a clause that says that no country with disputed borders can join. That, so that even legally, right. Ukraine could never join. So the question becomes, why does, you, does NATO actually continue to engage so provocatively in uh, with, with with Ukraine, and here you sort of really get into the, into the thick weeds because, in fact, the answer is. I mean, you know better than I because of your experience with uh, the Defense Department of Defense and so on. But um, there is a distinction between NATO, the rather small Brussels-based bureaucracy, and the actual strategic desire of the members of NATO. So you know, the, the, the people who are in NATO headquarters, you know, have you know need to push their pens. They need to. Think of you know this 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 framework of engagement and that program and, and you know there's a lot of you know bureaucratic noise that comes out which gives the impression that NATO is actively expanding, but actually uh, unfortunately and this is something that's almost impossible to to to, to ex- explain to Russians because they dismiss it as as, uh, as 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 just sort of bluster. But but the 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 reality is that actually the um, the, the 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 real engagement of NATO in Ukraine was extremely limited, and when you have that phone call between Trump and uh, Zelensky back in 2019, where Trump appears to you know dangle uh, to to to, to uh, draw an equivalence between continued military aid and Zelensky's uh, help with getting you know dishing the dirt on Hunter Biden, um, how much money are they really talking about? And the answer is 400 million bucks. So, I mean, given that the U.S. spends uh, about over $2 billion a day on defense, that's what, like five hours of U.S. defense spending? It's like, it's like you know, sofa chain. Yeah, yes, I think the, the, the technical term of art in the Pentagon for that is budget dust. 
budget us. <laughs> well, exactly. But to answer your question about about um, the annexation of, of Crimea, um, I think it's uh, it was clearly the decision on Putin's part was made very quickly. There was no real um, lead up to this. There was no deep need either in Crimea or Russia to annex Crimea. It had never been a thing, to put it bluntly. Um, it was it was not in any way in anyone's consciousness to to do that. It was a done on a whim. Uh, and I think that the proximate cause was, in, indeed, in order to stop uh, Ukraine from joining NATO. But actually, I think the primary uh, tactical consideration was to actually prevent uh, a future Ukrainian administration from cancelling the lease on Sevastopol, which is the Russian naval base, which was shared by the uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and uh, was on Ukrainian territory, but leased by by Russia. So um, the fear of NATO expansion of Ukraine becoming you know, part of NATO was you know, absolutely central to Putin's thinking all along. And by the way, it's, it's not that massively different from uh, you know, um, Jeff Kennedy's uh, thinking about Cuba. Khrushchev's missiles on Cuba were, fun were, were functionally, or the prospect of Cuba joining the Warsaw Pact, by the way, which was discussed, was, was considered to be an unacceptable risk to America's underbelly. So, I mean, the logic is the same. I, I mean, I would say, though, that the circumstances are somewhat different in the sense that, well, to go back to some of your earlier comments, um, you know, my, my Johns Hopkins colleague, Mary Serrati, would be uh, quite cross with me if I didn't point out that, you know, a lot of, since she's quoted by, by you in the book, that these assurances which Russia got about NATO not expanding one inch to the east were in the context of the unification of Germany. And it wasn't within the purview of the Bush 41 administration to promise anything about what its successors might do. Um, I was actually a party to the um, negotiations between Strobe Talbot and uh, Yevgeny Primakov uh, about the NATO-Russia Founding Act in, in 1997 uh, that paved the way for the first enlargement of NATO. And it was, the attempt was being done to do it in a way that was cooperative with Russia. And in any event, in the period we're talking about, 2014, there wasn't a single U.S. tank in Europe, uh, you know, at the time of the seizure of Crimea. So, you know, whatever fever dream Putin had about Ukrainian near-term membership in NATO, which, as you and I have both been discussing, was not really in the, in the cards, it was also in the context of a NATO that posed no military threat, per se, to, to Russia. I mean, you can imagine a perceived political threat in the context of all the things we've been discussing, but the military threat just wasn't there. Um, I think uh, I, I'm I'm not sure that uh, Russians would see it that way. Obviously, they didn't. I mean, the 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 point is that when you have a country that is you know, straddles your border without any natural feature, without any kind of natural border, uh, and and shares a uh, is it sixteen hundred kilometer long border with Russia? I mean, it's an enormous right. border, a land border. Uh, when that joins a, uh, a military alliance that is literally formed for the purpose of containing you, then um, it's not completely uh, unreasonable for the for, for, for the for the for the Russians to be concerned about it. Yeah, but that wasn't in the that was not on the table, Owen. Right? It wasn't in the cards. And in, in in, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. The, the, but but they thought that it was, and it, and it, it's it was you know they were not, they were not totally deluded. I mean they were, um, you know the 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 the, 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 the statement after the Bucharest summit was pretty unequivocal right. that actually Ukraine would eventually join. So um, the 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 question is you know what could NATO have done? I mean if if we just turn this whole debate on its head, right. at what point could NATO have said like, oh you know sorry, we don't mean it, you know, let's just back off, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, the, the, the problem is that um, both sides uh, consider the other to be constantly escalating. And so from the, so, so, so all the logic that I described about, you know, the view from Russia, that they think that NATO is expanding, it's encroaching, 
the view from NATO is precisely the same. What they see is a NATO is 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 a Russia that's getting more belligerent, is building up its troops. Is uh, in two thousand eight, you know, we have a sort of seminal moment where you have you know the invasion of of uh, of 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 Georgia, of not just the the, the breakaway uh, republics of Georgia, but actually Georgia proper. Right. Tanks on the road to Tbilisi. I was there. Um, so the um, the question uh, is, you know, and and they, I mean, the, the whole tragedy of the situation is that it's 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 a, it's a dialogue of the deaf, with both sides seeing constant escalation on the other's part, and crucially, the missing part is actually sort of good faith dialogue, on the part of the Kremlin, because actually, as we know, Putin lives in an information bubble. He's extremely paranoid. He's surrounded by people who are actually, if anything, more uh, paranoid and more aggressive than himself. So you just, uh, who are also completely convinced that the their lifelong main adversary, i.e., the United States, is hell bent on their destruction. And with, in the in that context, uh, there's actually almost nothing. Realistically, I think that the the you know that either the United States or NATO could really have done to staunch that or to reassure the, the 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 Russians and you know especially when you see their kind of you know completely sort of looney tunes demands um in January and February as discussed in Geneva between your you know your colleague Tony um, Blinken uh, as, as a Blinken yes Blinken and and Lavrov uh, you know, and it's and it's completely off the wall. Like NATO should like you know retreat to nineteen ninety seven positions, two thousand seven right. positions. I mean, it's completely nuts. Um, so this is nothing close to serious diplomacy. It's just it, it, it's it's just you know projection of this sort of constant resistance and anger and resentment against NATO expansion. I would think the one thing that actually could have been done, but I, and actually almost was done because this is kind of on the table. In the run-up to the 2022 war, was some kind of non-NATO security arrangement for Ukraine, and Zelensky did indicate clearly that he accept that. He said that, like you know, we don't have to join NATO, but we just have to have security guarantees, and that should have been fine. Except your interlocutor is not looking for fine; he's looking for something else. He's just looking for you know more evidence that the, you know his, his 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 enemy is trying to trick him. You talk about in the book, uh, I think, uh, you know, brilliantly sort of what brought Putin to go to war in, in 2022. I mean, I suppose we could, when you say what could NATO have done? I mean, one thing in 2014, given the fact that Russia had at that point violated both its bilateral treaty with Ukraine uh, by seizing Crimea, but also the multilateral uh, Budapest uh, Memorandum, which you talk about in the uh, in the book, the uh, assurances given to Ukraine when Ukraine uh, gave up its claim, and it was a claim because the nuclear weapons left on its territory after the breakup of the Soviet Union still remained in the hands of the Russian uh, strategic rocket forces. But uh, there could have been a war in in you know nineteen ninety. Two or ninety-three over these uh, weapons as they were being, you know, withdrawn. Uh, there was an agreement. The Russians violated it. Could NATO, uh, the U.S., NATO, the West, responded more firmly to what happened in twenty fourteen? Would that have made a difference? Do you think? Sure, of course it would have. Um, I, I think, it, I, yes, it would have. Um, but again, it, it's we, we we get into that sort of you know high school history debate. You know, uh, at what point you know should 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 the Allies have stopped, or should the French have stopped uh, the, the Germans marching into the Ruhr? Right. You know, should we have you know, you know drawn the line at the Sudetenland? Should we have drawn drawn the line at Munich right. and so on? At Czechoslovakia, you know, at what point could you have stopped? Um, I think the the as a historian, I'm rather uh, wary of historical analogies. So I, I, I don't think I don't think Hitler is actually a particularly good historical analogy because you know Hitler had his plan for reversing Versailles and winning his Lebensraum, you know, right from the get-go. He describes it completely. He has like literally a written manifesto in the form of his his prison memoir, uh, Mein Kampf, which is not Putin's case. Putin kind of like 
gets to, gets to that extremely aggressive position in the end. Um, the thing that the the, the 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 situation in 1914, so two, <laughs> Freudian slip 1940, in 2014 was um, ambiguous in one important sense. Um, and if we, um, I think Putin has proved um, amply with his invasion of, of 2022 that he is definitely not the strategic genius that many commentators, including myself considered him to be uh, falsely credited him with being. But there is one thing that Putin did very consistently and very smartly, and that uh, is that all of his military operations, his overseas military operations, were in a kind of moral gray zone. So, you know, in, 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 in 2014, uh, okay, he annexes Crimea, but on the other hand, it's bloodless. Um, it's also clear that, you know, for all the illegality of the annexation and the subsequent referendum and the Crimean Tatars being beaten up and that. So uh, I think um, it would be very hard to argue that the population of Crimea would be, were opposed to the, the Russians, the, to, to becoming Russian. Uh, people tend to forget that in 1992, um, the Ukrainians, the, 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 the Crimeans voted not just to leave the Soviet Union, they did leave, but Earlier, they had also voted to leave Ukraine. So it's 1991. The the population of Crimea voted to create a to recreate the sort of semi-independent Soviet autonomous Republic of Crimea in in in, in the spring of, of 1991. So um, that was a grey zone attacking Syria, sending warplanes into Syria. Like you know, he's supporting the Assad regime, but he's attacking ISIS. Um, you know, in in Donbass. It's, you know, it is the population seems to be not pro Kiev. They there seems to be some real sympathy. I was in Donbass at the time. I mean, there certainly was some sympathy for uh, for, for 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 Moscow and hostility to to Kiev. So like, with with every stage, he's kind of kept on the shadow side. He's like it's always shades of grey. You know, the, none of these things taken uh, discreetly is. Anything that the United the United States or the Western world would fight World War Three for, you know, whether Crimea is Russian or Ukrainian, it's you know, as as George Clooney brilliantly says in in Syriania, um, yes, no, it's complicated, <laughs> you know, it's always complicated, but then suddenly in 2022, it's not complicated. He just steps out of the grey zone into the black zone, and suddenly all bets are off. It's a terrible strategic mistake. Um, but the, 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 to go back to your original question of what could have been done in 2014, well, what could have been done in 2014? Uh, we could have imposed stronger sanctions. That's certainly true. Uh, we uh, the, the Germans could not, having said at the beginning of uh, uh, in the aftermath of Crimea, of the Crimean annexation, Angela Merkel insists that this will not stand. That this is unacceptable. Um, that you know territorial. Land grabs are not part of our sort of European civilization. Two thousand fourteen, and then fourteen months later, signs a ten billion dollar gas deal with Gazprom. Right. I mean, they could have not done that, for instance. So you know, the, um, uh, the, the 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 in the end, the message is that you know what what Putin hears is you know, frankly, these Europeans are just you know their words, their rhetoric is just you know blah blah. Right. It's all lip service, essentially, as far as, as he can tell. Yeah, and uh, and and so in, in in that sense, there 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 is a sort of fatal a fatal weakness that's been demonstrated there. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's not that the Europeans did not act. What they thought they were doing with Minsk One and Minsk Two was actually creating a framework whereby they would actually um, you know the. The central plank of Minsk of both Minsk agreements was uh, a referendum in the in the in the in the rebel republics. You know that seems pretty sensible, right? I mean, why not do that? Um, so it, it, they thought they'd fixed the problem, and furthermore, I'm, it's very easy to forget now that actually, in uh, right up until 2020, the position of the Kremlin. Uh, concerning the rebel republics of the Donbas was that they were part of Ukraine, right? They repeated that often, like, this is Ukraine. We want them in Ukraine. I mean, the reason why they wanted 
to them in Ukraine was, you know, 100% evil. They wanted them to, like, you know, mess up Ukraine. They wanted, like, them as a thorn in the side of Ukraine. They wanted them as, like, a drag anchor to stop them going westwards. They want they supported the territorial integrity of Ukraine minus Crimea for all kinds of, like, bad imperial reasons. But nonetheless, they never said, this is our territory. And that changes very abruptly at uh, the beginning of 2022. Let's go there. What you, as I said in the book, you, I think, have a masterful explanation of what it is that leads Putin, as you say, to move from the gray zone into the black zone. Tell us, you know, recount a little bit, you know, the factors you see that lead him to do this in the 2020 to 2022 period and and the timing, if you could comment a little bit about what is it that drives the timing of all this? Well, I, I think I think five things happen. Um, one, um, he well, for a start, he starts the war because he thinks he can win it. Why does he think he can win it? Because America has just been humiliated in in Afghanistan. Uh, Angela Merkel has stepped down as the Chancellor of Germany. Um, the, the, um, he's spent eight years investing seven percent of GDP in his army. The only time the, the, the Russian army and the Ukrainian army have actually met in the field in, in Ilovayevsk in, in 2014 and in Debaltsev in 2015, um, the Russians have kicked the Ukrainians backside. Um, the, the Zelensky, he believes, is a weak leader. And um, furthermore, he is convinced that the European sanctions, uh, and he's built up a, a war chest large enough to support um, um, sanctions. That wasn't five, that was seven. But anyway, the, the point is, um, but underlying all of that, um, he's um, the reason why he decides to that an, only an invasion will do is the more important question. Um, I think because uh, by the beginning of 2020, it's clear that there's the, the Russian strategy that we just talked about, um, that having the Donbass republics inside Ukraine messing things up and preventing that westward drift, that strategy that they've been trying to pursue for, at that point, six years, isn't working. It's not working. There's just basically no way that they can make that happen. Um, largely, in fact, not because the Donbass republics don't want to vote. They do want to vote. In fact, they agree to have a vote in 2019. It's the ultranationalists in Kiev that are stopping Zelensky in October 2019 from doing that. So basically, by the beginning of 2020, they just think, you know, it's over. We need to come up with a better solution. And um, I think the real tipping point was, you know, why, you know, why invasion as opposed to sort of engagement disruption, all the, all the sort of dirty tricks that Russia's been up to since, uh, uh, I mean, arguably, you know, since 1991, but like, you know, acutely since 2014, um, is uh, what happens in Belarus. And actually, I think it's one of the flaws in the book is I don't really write quite as much as I should or emphasize that quite as much as I should, um, is that actually in the summer, in August of 2020, Belarus is rocked by these enormous and extremely violent um, demonstrations involving hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, far worse than anything that um, um, that, that Putin's ever, ever saw in 2011 or 2012 with a much smaller population. So therefore, actually, you know, you have like 10% of the population out on the streets eventually. And that's really, and, and again, entirely consistently with with his reaction to the Velvet Revolutions, to the Maidan Revolution and so on, Putin thinks that this is like the dastardly hand of America, just in a, and, and, you know, the salami has, 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 has taken another slice. Um, and, and I think at, the, at, the, and, and at, at that fatal juncture where, like, the whole strategy, Russia strategy in, uh, with Ukraine is breaking down, the, 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 the um, um, uh, Belarus protests are breaking out, you know, overlapping that COVID breaks out and Putin goes into like deep isolation and spends, as far as we can tell, he's, you know, spends at least two years in like sort of deep paranoid COVID isolation, you know, not, not just sitting behind six meter tables, but actually, you know, forcing everyone who meets him in, you know, to quarantine for, for, for at least 10 days. I mean, this is well documented. Right. Spending hundreds, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on like sort of you know COVID sanitation facilities and quarantine facilities around him. 
you know, you talk in the book, you cover uh, very well the events of the, the war, the initial thrust towards Kiev, the frustration uh, of that by the Ukrainians. Just inter alia, I don't want to go down this particular rabbit hole, but as a former U.S. ambassador to Finland who has spent some time studying the Winter War of 1939-40, it's like, you know, deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra said. I mean, it looks very similar in, in, ter- in military terms. But you also talk then about the Russian offensive uh, in several Donetsk in the spring uh, of uh, 22, and uh, and then the counteroffensives in the fall by uh, Ukraine that uh, ultimately drive the Russians uh, out of uh, Kharkiv province back into Lugansk. And, and then the, not, I wouldn't say equally successful, but the uh, forced evacuation of Kherson by, uh, by the Ukrainians. And when your book ends, I mean, uh, even though it, obviously you finished writing several months ago, the truth is the battlefield hasn't moved much s- since since then. So what what do you think the prospects are here? Of course, a lot of discussion, uh, given all the U.S. military assistance and training of Ukrainian forces of a forthcoming offensive. There's been the constant assault by uh, Prigozhin's uh, Wagner uh, uh, group, uh, private military company, along with MOD troops in Bakhmut, which seems to, Ukrainians seems to seem to have decided to make that an effort to just attrit and waste uh, the Russian forces uh, to some effect. I mean, losses have been quite uh, quite astonishing. Um, what do you see going forward? How, how does, to um, borrow the phrase that uh, David Petraeus asked uh, Linda Robinson, one of your colleagues in the Fourth Estate about the war in Iraq, tell me how this ends. Yeah, I, I, think, I think several things are clear. Um, uh, Zelensky has one shot. I don't think there's going to be you know, a spring 2024 Ukrainian offensive. Um, I don't think there's going to be a, a sort of winter 23-24 shopping round by Zelensky. I think the uh, in 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 that sense, I think Putin's calculation that the West will lose interest um, or will start to sue for peace, uh, at least, uh, is unfortunately pretty well founded. Uh, you already see, um, you know, the cracks are already running in the Republican Party, although it's actually still a minority of uh, GOP senators and congressmen who have signed up to that uh, letter. Uh, you know, it's, it's still sort of the Marjorie Taylor Greens who is, of this world who are still, you know, passionately opposed. But already, you know, Ron DeSantis, you know, he then, he, you know, he criticized aid to Ukraine and then he kind of uncriticized it in the sort of sorry, well, not sorry kind of way. But nonetheless, you know, the, the you know, the Overton window, the, the, the window of possible debate is definitely moving against Ukraine in the, in the, in the United States political discourse. That's really clear. Um, the cracks also running in Europe uh, and, and the crack is not you know, um, is is not that people are going to suddenly start hating Ukraine and loving uh, Putin. That's not that's not the split. The split is between peace and justice. And you have you know large constituencies um, who are not pro Putin, by the way, or not anti Ukraine, but they are just pro peace. Um, uh, in certainly in the Italian right, uh, the you know in Germany, um, it's caused major economic damage, especially the the. the to, to, to um, the German chemical industries. I mean, Europe's energy prices have now gone down to pre-war levels, or have, they've been down there for some time. But nonetheless, uh, the pre-war levels were still high, you know, almost three times higher than they had been in the two years uh, prior to that in 2019. So, you know, there's uh, that debate over peace over peace versus justice is. Do we just bring an end to this war, end the bloodshed, and just draw the line uh, where you know along the line of control? career style or do we as a shrinking proportion of europeans believe continue to fight to the bitter end and uh, ensure that putin is punished that justice is served that uh, that as zelensky has has called for that the russia gets thrown out of um th- thrown out of all of um of uh, of the territory it's taken but i tend to agree with the assessments that we've seen on the discord leaks that actually um, the United States 
um, government appears to be somewhat skeptical about the prospect of a full Ukrainian victory. And you can kind of see why, because the, um, you know, if, if you just look at the numbers, at the metrics of it, um, there have been you know, uh, approximately 50 Leopard tanks um, de de delivered from uh, 12 Challenger 2 tanks from Britain. I think it's up, nearly up to 50 Leopard tanks from Germany, the Netherlands, and so on. The Russia still has, um, even by US DOD estimates, at least half of its main battle tank fleet still intact, and that's at least 1,400 main battle tanks. So you know the Ukrainians have got 50 more and tanks, and the Russian you know versus 1,500, and they are attacking. The Russians are defending. We know how that goes. I'm not a military expert, but I mean obviously I, I speak to people who who are um, the. Uh, it's the the the, the, the country is is flat, but actually has been deeply defended um, by the Russians. So unfortunately, I don't really see any a realistic prospect of uh, Ukraine actually taking back all the territory that it has lost to Russia. Uh, it will take back a lot, as I mean, it will take take back as much as it can. But already, you see, even today, I, I just read that um, the EU has called for uh, the EU's foreign policy chief has called for Ukraine to negotiate with Russia, quote unquote, from a, from a position of strength. I mean, decoded, what does that mean? It means, you know, give it a go, uh, take as much as you can. And then, you know, sorry, we're just, you know, pulling the plug on this at a certain point, um, which is not a terrible outcome, by the way, because um, there have been several Ukrainian politicians, including Zelensky's first foreign minister, uh, Vadim Pristaiko, who's now, um, who was fired in 2019 um, and is now was punished by being sent to London as Ukraine's ambassador. But in 2019, <laughs> he was... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but Pristaiko said in 2019 um, that actually we need to you know, discuss whether there is any good that's going to come to Ukraine from owning Donbass. Yeah. Maybe we should just amputate it like a gangrenous limb and just like say goodbye to Donbass. If they don't want to be with us, then they don't want to be with us. Like, fine, we should prepare ourselves for the fact that they, that, that he was talking about it in the context of a vote, of course, not in, in the context of an armed aggression, to be fair to Vadim. But the, um, you know, th that's a, a genuine question. You know, wh why, why don't they just let Donbass go and just, uh, uh, and the answer that the Ukrainians will give is, moral hazard and practical hazard that we leave an enemy you know wounded and humiliated but not uh, incapacitated and furthermore you know we're rewarding aggression because whatever you know because putin will still have been end up with the ukrainian land uh, so in that sense it's, it's a somewhat insoluble solution but i think um the only answer is essentially a korean type situation because no ukrainian leader whether zelensky or anybody else can ever survive signing off on a land for peace deal. That's completely inconceivable. It's not unsurvivable for any Ukrainian leader to do that. Particularly after the last year and the war crimes and the horrors that have been visited on um, on Ukrainians by the occupying Russian uh, forces, I think make make that all the more the case. We're we're uh, getting we're really running low on time, and uh, before we lose you, I there are two two other topics I want to quickly get get into. One is. I'm going to read the epigram from, uh, I think it's the last chapter of your book, uh, which is a quotation from the Russian poet and critic Dmitry Bikov, in, in which, which he says, the Putin regime is all about stealing wealth that is buried under the earth. And one of the deepest buried resources in Russia is the profound conservatism of its people, their lack of education, loyalty, resistance to change, ignorance and hostility to anything foreign or new, is also a kind of oil laid down in very deep and ancient layers. It is something valuable that can be mined and exploited like any other natural resource. And I, I read that quotation because when one watches uh, Russian uh, TV news, when you see Margarita Simonyan or your old playmate Solovyov, whose television show you frequently would appear when you were in Moscow, uh, and I think it's only fair to tell our our listeners, that you are upholding truth and right uh, very vociferously in those conversations. 
uh, which was even in those days, uh, you know, uh, kind of surprising that they would let that go on. Although it tells you a little bit about how much things have changed. But now what you what now what now what you see uh, in the you know in the, uh, nightly on on Russian television is precisely an effort to mine what Bikoff, uh talks about really frighteningly eliminationist xenophobic rhetoric. And I wonder, since you have so much experience on Russian television, what do you make of that, and what does it portend for the future of Russia? Uh, well, the um, some things haven't changed. Uh, the, the, the sort of hysterical anti-Ukrainian uh, rants uh, were exactly the same when I would go on. I guess that was 2017, 18, 19. I went. Uh, I did nearly a hundred shows about nature. Um, the, the reason why I did it was because journalistically it was rather interesting to actually talk to these people. They're, they're definitely not first rank people, but they're, you know, people like, you know, the heads of uh, Senate committees, uh, Duma faction chairman, um, you know, deputy heads, deputy ministers. Those kind of, you know, it's not the bag carrying class, it's not the top class, but you know, there are people who are sort of, you know, in 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 serious senior positions in the Russian government, so journalistically it was kind of interesting to be, you know, in the room with them, and we would chat, and it was basically a way of of of, of so sneakily interviewing all these guys. Uh, uh, secondly, I did it because I was interested in how the Russian propaganda machine worked, and thirdly, I was interested to actually, if not me, then who, um, because I speak fluent Russian and I'm able to debate. Um, including under that incredibly high pressure environment where everyone's like screaming at you. It's, it's really very adversarial. Uh, but anyway, um, to answer your question back then, um, the reason why they got me on as a foreign journalist, I said things, by the way, because I was a foreigner that no Russian would be allowed to go on and say, for instance, almost every time I went on these shows, uh, it became like a sort of almost a signature thing. It's like, I would say like, by the way, you do realize that, you know, the regime is, you know, invading Syria or doing this thing in Donbass uh, because to distract you from the fact that they're sort of wholesaling, stealing your country from you. You know that, right? You know, and it would be sort of, you know, and, and no one ever told me what I shouldn't, should or shouldn't say. But because I was able to say things that you know, were, were sort of outrageously anti-Putin all the time, uh, actually, because they're smart, because these, this, is, this is produced by extremely smart, very cynical people, um, my opposition, in fact, as I came to realize, kind of actually reinforced the illusion that this was an objective show. I mean, and they could say like, oh, look, but we have Owen Matthews of Newsweek on. And here he is telling us that, you know, you know Vladimir Putin is robbing our country blind. And, and, and this is all just a distraction. And unfortunately, you know, my opposition on that show kind of validated that illusion, which is why I stopped doing it, in fact. But uh, as you rightly observe, uh, after the beginning of the war, it just sort of kicked into a different, into a different key. It just became, you know, frankly hysterical, and you know, terrifyingly so. The, the the question is actually, and it's not entirely clear uh, to the, the extent to which this is entirely top down. And having spent, you know, having been on these shows and talked to the producers, and you know, sort of had dinner with them and sort of known them somewhat socially, um, these you know talented, cynical people who put this appalling propaganda product together um you start to realize that actually for most of the time they're kind of just winging it you know they don't get a phone call every morning from the kremlin and say like you know today comrade the party line is abc no actually no um and quite often they get it wrong they go too far even um so they're they're, they're all just sort of like a bunch of needy school kids kind of clamoring for the attention of 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 of, of teacher you know by trying to do and say the right thing oh and we, uh, we're gonna uh, lose you in a couple of minutes but i do want to uh, at least for our listeners um uh, uh touch on not not, not just this uh, terrific work of nonfiction that you've produced but also some uh some works of fiction that you've written um uh, black sun and red Red Trader, Black Sun, I, I believe, is uh, about uh, Andrei Sakharov. Can you tell uh, the, our listeners a little bit about what, what it was that drew you to the thriller genre and uh, why you decided to do that in addition to, you know, writing these, um, you know, quite scholarly uh, books that you've uh, written on Stalin's children and, and uh, other topics, Nikolai Rezanov and others? Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was poverty, I must <laughs> <laughs> I just did it for fun and cash. 
is the honest answer. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Um, but uh, I want to commend them to our listeners as as well, since um, it, this is not a GoFundMe campaign. But you know, I, you know, <laughs> we, we need to do everything we can to support good journalism these days. Our guest has been Owen Matthews. Uh, Owen, thank you so much for for your time. I suspect as this goes on, you'll have to write a, an epilogue for the paperback edition of Overreach, uh, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine, uh, published by HarperCollins. Uh, and when you do the epilogue, we'll have to have you back. Thank you. It'll be my great pl- pleasure and privilege. 